0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 this morning, we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage, as most of the Revelation is. And a passage that stirs up in our minds all types of thoughts and all types of images and descriptions and causes us to long for the day that God is revealing to us and to long for this moment when all things are made new. So if you've got your copy, just keep it open and follow along as I read it. And then I'll pray for us and then we'll study it together. So Revelation Chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning. John is writing under the inspiration of God when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's Word. Let's pray together before we study it. Father, thank you for your Word Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for the songs of praise that we sing to you that that remind us of the things that we have to praise you for. And they remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. And they remind us of where we've come from as sinners separated from you, but now by faith in Christ, reunited to you to have a hope in this world and in the world to come. Thank you for our children who sing these truths. I pray that by your Spirit, that you would plant these truths deep in their hearts and allow the fruit of of sure faith and salvation to come. And Father, I pray for all of us now as we focus on your Word and try to understand it, uh, would you accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your Word, whether it, like Jeff mentioned, is to comfort us or to afflict us. Have your way with us, I pray, and use me in Jesus' name. Amen. I know this is a A broad question to ask, and I don't necessarily want everyone to shout an answer, but maybe you can think in your minds, because I know you already have at some point, but how would you describe heaven? What are you most looking forward to about that eternal state? What is heaven holding out as a hope and a promise to you that warms your heart and comforts you, maybe even brings a tear to your eye? At some level, we've all thought about this, and if you're a child, you may have thought about heaven as this wonderfully amazing place with all of these beautiful things and people and all of this stuff. If you are maybe older in age, you think about heaven as a relief from the burden of life, longing to be with the Lord. Maybe if you're in middle age like me, you're just looking for some downtime, and heaven is, I don't have a calendar anymore, no more schedules, no more appointments and things like that. We we try to take what we see in Scripture and we try to make sense out of that in such a way that we can hold on to it and be encouraged by it, be comforted by it, and find hope in it. But I think the more we do that, the more we realize that our words just fall short of the reality of what heaven will be. The words and the symbols that we use to describe the place where we will spend eternity with God, they always fall short of the reality. That's the way biblical symbols work. The symbols themselves don't go beyond the reality. They fall short of the reality. And that's true both of our description of heaven and our description of eternal punishment in hell. That's the way biblical symbols work. But that doesn't keep us from trying to describe it. That doesn't keep us from longing for it. That doesn't keep us from thinking about what we see in scripture and then broadening that out to expand it to our own situation. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's work, not just his um, mere Christianity and things, but you're, you're maybe familiar with his children's books. In his series of Narnia, the last book is called The Last Battle, and the final chapter of that book is titled Farewell to Shadowland. And in this book, he includes these words, which I think, kind of summarizes in some way what we're thinking about today. He says this, The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If there were a way to summarize the closing chapters of the Revelation, that seems to be a pretty decent start. Every new chapter better than the one before. And that's where we are as we're studying through this book. We've come to the end of the age. And as this age ends, the eternal age begins. We're moving out of the shadow land in this this vision that we're seeing here. Out of the old story and into the new story. The story that will never end. And as we've come to this point, we understand a few things. Our enemies have been defeated one by one. Our king has returned. And now the new age has dawned. Later in the book, Lewis writes, it is the dawning of a new day. The dream has ended and it is now the morning. It's like waking up to a whole new reality. And as this passage unfolds, we're going to see that God reveals to us how he's going to make all things new. And he does it in three ways. Number one, we see a vision. Number two, we see or we hear a voice. And then three, we receive this vow or promise from God. So a vision, a voice, and a vow. Let's look first at the vision. Go back to verse 1. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to take my first deep breath of that new earth smell, right? But what is that going to look like? I mean, when God says he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, what does that mean? Now, I mentioned this in brief last week, but I'll, br- I'll bring you into the, the broader theological debate. Within Protestant theology, there's an ongoing debate over whether the consummation of all things is going to result in the earth being completely destroyed and then replaced, or if it will be changed and renewed. Burkhoff notes that, uh, if, you, if you're into historical theology, Burkhoff says that Lutheran scholars tended to emphasize that it's going to be an entirely new creation, while Reformed scholars on the other side, so you're talking about Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, two different cam- or three different camps really, but Reformed scholars tend to emphasize the verses that simply describe the present creation being renewed, not completely done away with and then re- uh, something else coming in, but Being renewed in in a similar fashion as I mentioned last week, when God flooded the world in Genesis chapter 6 with water, the earth itself was not completely destroyed, it was changed, utterly changed. And I think that serves as something of a pattern for what we're going to see in the end when the fire of judgment falls and the earth will be judged, but it will also be renewed by God's power. Now, that latter portion. That's my personal opinion. You can hold either one. They're they're good, faithful men and women on both sides of that. But either way, what the Scriptures are telling us here is that the familiar world that we inhabit today will be making way for what is to come. And this is not new to the New Testament. We see this in the Old Testament prophets, specifically in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah is um, communicating the prophecy of God God is speaking in this particular portion and he says this behold I create new heavens and a new earth the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind that's that's one of the promises of what is to come and that's all the way back in Isaiah The earth and the heaven that are to come, we're told here that they will be new. Same thing that is said in the Old Testament. It doesn't say that there will be a second heaven and a second earth. It says that the first and the former will pass away. They will not be remembered, but the new heaven and the new earth will come. And they are clearly the work of God. It is only God who creates. God is the one bringing about the new heaven and the new earth. And there's something interesting about the word new. There's a couple of different words that are used in the Greek language for the word new. Some of them mean, or one of them particularly means something new, something that did not exist before. Well, that's not the word that's actually used here. The word that's used here is kinos. It refers predominantly to a change in the quality of something, a change in the essence of something, rather than bringing something that wasn't in existence into existence. So that's why I hold to the view that I hold. But either way, the old will make way for the new. The world corrupted by sin will be renewed and made free from sin's scars. That's the point of this. So try to imagine a world with no corruption at all. How many gardeners do we have in the room? Imagine a garden and no more weeding, no more bugs, just beautiful, healthy plants all the time, No more weeds, no more harsh weather, right? Jeff mentioned that today is a beautiful day and next week it's going to be in the high 80s. Maybe, we don't know. It's Texas. Just hold on and see if it changes. But we won't have to deal with the harsh cold or the scorching heat. No more chiggers. No more mosquitoes. No more cobwebs and angry spiders. Imagine a world... Where the effects of sin, and and I know we can debate whether mosquitoes were a part of the fall. I'm convinced of that. I grew up in Louisiana. (laughs) But that's the picture. In all of the ways that the earth has been subjected to futility because of man's sin, that will be undone. All things made new. Imagine a world with the beauty of our world. But that beauty gets dialed up to infinity. That is the picture that this passage brings to mind. The good things in our world will be set free. They will be amplified. They will be made new while the futility and fallenness of the present world will come to an end. New. John uses the term new nine different times throughout the revelation and four of them occur right here in chapter 21. And in each case, he's talking about the the new is coming, and and we have this understanding that the, the origin of this thing is in some way in the old, right? The new covenant came out of the old covenant. The new Jerusalem causes us to remember the old Jerusalem. You notice in the text that the Jerusalem, that the holy city comes down out of heaven. It's not rebuilt on the earth. It's something new. It's something that God creates, not something that man makes, but our understanding of Jerusalem as the place where God and man dwell together, well, that is something that has an Old Testament and an old connotation. New heaven and the new earth based on the old. That's the way he's using this word. And we see other New Testament authors talk about this. Paul talks about, In Romans chapter 8, about the earth groaning. I mentioned that a minute ago. Creation itself was subjected to futility because of man's sin. And, And the earth itself is groaning and longing and aching to be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And that's what we're reading about here in chapter 21. The Lord is going to transform heaven and earth to free them, to restore them, to make them ready... To be that dwelling place of God with man. The old will pass away. And the new will come. But what about the phrase, the sea is no more? What is that all about? Now we've heard... John, or we've read John describing the sea in various ways. All the way back in chapter, six, uh, chapter 4, we learned that there's a, a sea like glass surrounding the throne of God. That's not the same sea that's part of the creation, I don't think. But there's a way in which John uses the, the idea of sea, and in, in its symbolic form, it means certain things. Don't just think of the oceans. That's part of it, but he uses it in other ways. Um, In chapter 4, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 15, he talks about the sea as being the source of cosmic evil, this chaotic place where evil dwells, again, symbolically. He, He talks about it being associated with the wicked nations who persecute the people of God. He talks about that in Genesis, I mean in Revelation 12 and Revelation 13, Revelation 17. He talks about it being the place of the dead. We saw that just uh, last week. Uh, in chapter 20, the, the, "The sea will give up the dead," and it's understood there to be symbolic of a, a place of the storehouse of the dead." He talks about it being the location of the world's idolatrous trade activity. That was in Revelation 18, and then he talks about it being this chaotic and dangerous body of water mentioned alongside the earth, the earth and the sea. So John has used the sea in in five different ways here, and I don't think that what he's trying to get across is that when the new heaven and new earth come, there will be no water on the earth. I don't think that's the point. The point is to say this, when you take all of these symbols as a whole, he's saying that the source of cosmic evil will be gone. He's saying that the persecution of God's people will come to an end. Death is no longer going to be a place that, I mean, the sea is no longer going to be a place that holds the dead because there will be no more death. The sea will never again be used for idolatry and even the out of control and chaotic nature of the sea will be subdued because the new heaven and the new earth will be a place of perfect peace. Like That's the picture that he's painting here. By the way, he is talking about what we would describe as heaven. Although I would say what he's describing here is heaven and earth coming together. Heaven is the place where God dwells, earth is the place where man dwells, and there's no longer going to be a distinction between those two. But heaven is, in fact, an actual place. When the Bible speaks of heaven as the place where God dwells. It's not referring to heaven as a human state of mind. You may have heard that somewhere along the way. No, this is an actual place. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended to a place. And when he returns to earth, it will require him to leave that place. When Jesus was about to leave this world, you remember what he told his disciples? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And upon his return, he says, I'm going to take you to be with me there, and you will dwell with me there forever. The Bible teaches that believers will receive, will be raised from the dead and receive a resurrected body, not just a a, a disembodied soul, but a body, a resurrected body. And resurrected bodies require a place. Heaven is a real place. So John is seeing a vision, and it is right for us to understand that, but he He's describing to us in symbolic language a real place. And the centerpiece for this new place is this new and holy city, the new Jerusalem, he says. This city comes down out of heaven as a work of God. And and I don't know where your mind goes there. My mind goes to an Old Testament story of the Tower of Babel. And maybe this is not the right distinction, but... Bear with me here. It is not Babel reaching out to assault heaven in its own autonomous pride, but this is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a gift from God. It's almost as if God says, oh, you want to build a really important city that can bridge heaven and earth? Let me show you how that's done. I'm going to do that myself in the Revelation, the term Jerusalem is not found that many times. Although Holy City and that language is found over and over again, that Jerusalem is found right here in in Revelation 21. It's also in chapter 3 in the letters that Jesus wrote. But I don't believe that what he's doing here is alluding to the capital of Israel. He's talking about something that that goes beyond that. Jerusalem as an actual city was just, was a shadow. It was a, a A hint of what was to come. And what is to come is a heavenly city made by God, gifted to his people. It is the place where he will dwell with us forever. It's not a renovation of the old city. It's different. New heaven and new earth is different. This place comes out of heaven, comes down. The description is unique. And this is going to be the perfect God-created permanent dwelling place of God with man. That's what this is describing to us, a holy city, a new Jerusalem. Now, if I had to choose a theme for the first two verses, it would be the word new. All this new stuff is coming. But there is a voice to go along with the vision, and the voice shows us what is the main point of this passage. Actually, what I would describe as the main point of the Bible from Genesis chapter 4 to the end of Revelation. Let's look at it. Look at the voice in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So the voice from the throne is declaring that the dwelling place of God is with man. And that is the point of this entire vision. As much as we like to focus in on, on the other aspects of it, that the all things being made new and the new Jerusalem coming down, this is the main point of the whole passage. And it's the main point of the whole Bible. God and man once again dwelling together. The new has come for a purpose. And the purpose is so that God and man can be together once again. Sin has been removed, all of the pain, all of the death, all of the grief that sin has caused has been wiped away. And this vision shows that all that has happened for a purpose, and the purpose is so that God can finally come back into the presence of His creation. God is the one that made the way. Think back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Or you can think to the beginning of Genesis for that matter when God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates a garden and he, and he puts all of the things together. And, and in that space, that beautiful space of what we consider to be Eden is a place where God and man dwell together. There are even angels in the garden and all of the creation is represented in the garden. And yet when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of God's presence, cast out of the garden, not having access to the tree of life. And then after that, after that exile, if you will, the temple, the tabernacle served as this place where God and man could come back together and only one man and only once a year and only for one purpose. And yet this heavenly reality is pointing us to something broader where all of the people of God can come out of our exile and back into his presence. That's the point of the whole Bible. And that's definitely the main point of this passage. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were told to leave, and they lived from that point in a state of exile. Exile means to be barred from one's home, from one's native land, and that's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. And as a result of that, their exile has been passed down to us. All of mankind is in a state of exile from God. We're not able to come into his presence on our own. In Genesis 11, I mentioned Babel earlier. In Genesis 11, humanity came together to try to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. They built themselves a new home, and it was a symbol of their autonomy from God. And God reached down, and he disrupted all of that. He came down and said, that's not how this is going to happen. In order for us to come back into the presence of God, it's not going to be on our own terms. It's not going to be on our own strength. It's going to be on God's terms, because God's going to be the one that makes the way. All of humanity was sent into exile, and this exile is more about separation from God than it is about separation from an earthly home. In all of us, there exists this deep longing to be right with God. God has placed eternity in our hearts, and we can describe that as this longing for home, this longing to be back with God, because as a result of our sin, we're separated from the person and place where we most deeply belong. J.R. Tolkien wrote about this in one of his letters. He says, we all long for Eden. We are constantly glimpsing it and our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane is still soaked with a sense of exile. That longing in your heart that desire that is common across all of humanity. It's a longing to be back with God. And this vision in Revelation 21 is telling us that our exile is coming to an end. God will be with us again. The most important piece to this whole passage, the reunion of God and man, that's the central hope of our Christian faith. God is going to pitch his tent and invite us in heaven isn't heaven if God isn't there. I don't know what you think about when you think about heaven, but understand this, the reality of our hope in Christ is not that we will just be set free to go fishing forever, or be set free so we can go golfing forever, or be set free to go shoe shopping forever, or whatever kind of thing it might be, or go on vacation forever. Heaven isn't heaven if God's not there. The deep longing of our hearts is not just to be set free from this world, it's to be reunited with our Creator. And that's what this is all about. And God is the one who makes it possible for us to be with Him. He's the one who sent His Son to live for us and die for us, to make a way for us to come back in His presence. And and He's going to create this place where that can be a reality for us. And he even tells us that he's going to make that place more amazing because he's going to come, not only in his presence, but in a comforting way. Look at verse 4. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. I don't know about you, but I've shed a lot of tears in my lifetime. I've, I've endured grief and pain and sorrow. We had a prayer meeting this morning. And in our prayer meeting, it's at 9 o'clock, by the way. You, you're welcome to join us if you'd like. We just read the scriptures together, and one of our elders leads us in a devotion, and then we just pray for one another, whatever's on our list. And and there were, before we even started to pray, there were 10 different names, ten different situations on our prayer list, and all of them were dealing with some kind of grief, some kind of suffering, some kind of hurt, some kind of death, some kind of near death. We're all in the midst of that at various levels. All of us can have some understanding of what it's going to be like when that's no longer, when our prayer list is going to be nothing but praise. Praise. No more sickness, no more illness, no more praying for the comfort of families who lost a loved one untimely. That's the picture. And it's not just going to be a reality because God's going to remove those things, but he's going to be present with us, wiping away tears. That's hard for me to get my mind around. If there's one idea in the Revelation that we can all draw some comfort from, it may be this one. He's going to wipe our tears from our eyes. The sorrow that we feel over our sinful past will be wiped away. The shame that we experience from our sinful present will be wiped away. The loss that leaves us silent and empty will be wiped away. The hurt that others have brought to us will be completely forgotten. There's a day coming for the followers of Christ when Jesus will do that for each of us when the pain and sorrow of sin will be wiped from our eyes. When we look into the face of God, we will know that everything's going to be okay. No more pain, no more grief, no more suffering. All those things will pass away. Even death, he says in this passage, will be no more. These things have no part in God's new creation because the old will have passed away. And God promises, God vows to make all things new. So we've we've seen a vision. We've heard a, a voice. Now let's look at God's vow, his promise to us. Look at verse five. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. The reason they need to be written down is because they are trustworthy and true. And so we can receive them as such, trustworthy and true. God is making all things New. Now we all like new things, right? Um, that that's what keeps our economy going is the the longing and the desire that we have to buy new things. But we know what to expect when we buy new things, right? When you buy a new car. And it's all great, and all the, the new car smell, you know it's going to wear off at some point. You know you're going to go to the grocery store, and you're going to park it beside someone who doesn't care that much about dinging it. You know that stuff's going to happen. You know that pristine paint job is going to get scratched because your kids ride their bikes right up next to it. Or is that just mine? Maybe that's just mine. We, we know that's going to happen. We know that things in this world, they don't stay new. They, they, they grow old. This The things in this world, they age. New things become old things. But the idea in this is that that will happen in reverse. All things will be made new. Here's a quote God does not merely make new things to replace what is old, broken, and obsolete, He makes all things to be new. That's an interesting distinction. This promise of a new creation transcends our current categories of temporary newness, revealing a new kind of newness that never wears out, never breaks down. The Alpha and Omega makes all things to be new and stay ever new. What a concept. What a beautiful picture of the world that is to come. And it's interesting to note that this work has already begun Notice the tense of the verb. God says, I am making all things new. I don't do this very often because there's probably a dozen people in this room that understand the Greek and verb tenses and the importance of them. But sometimes it's important for me to point out, even to those of you who aren't familiar with it, this is a present, active, indicative. This means the work has already begun. And we see it's. Um, that it has begun in phrases like this from Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. As a new creation, God has done a work in us to, that already begins the work that is going to be made in full when he returns. Does that make sense? This is already happening, but it's going to come in a consummating way, in its perfection in the end. And I read a word in that phrase. It says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, word reconciled is an important word. It's not a word that we use all that often in our common everyday vernacular, but it's a very important word. To be reconciled means to be restored in a relationship. It means to be brought back together. And that's what this picture in Revelation 21, 1-8 is all about. It's us being brought back together with God. And it implies that we were once separated. And that's exactly what the gospel teaches us. That's exactly what the gospel teaches us. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the central message of our Christian faith. If you're visiting and you've never heard this language before, maybe you haven't heard it in a while, the gospel is the main message of Christianity that makes all of this a hope for us and a reality for us. And the gospel tells us some really interesting things. Gospel itself means good news. And it implies a few things. It implies that there is some bad news that the good news comes in to comfort us in. And and here's the way the gospel can be described. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, because we miss the mark and we transgress the boundaries that God has set for us, which all of us do. Romans 3 makes that clear, but the whole Bible makes that clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, we are separated from God. Because of our disobedience, because of our unwillingness to honor Him as God, because of our rebellion against His commands, we are distant, we're separated from God, we're we're exiled from His presence. And and what's even more uncomfortable or bad news is the fact that as a a just judge, we are going to be held accountable by God for our rebellion and sin. So we're separated from God in our sin, and the, the outlook for us is grim because judgment is coming. On our own, we can't overcome that separation, just like we read in Philippians earlier. Our righteousness is like filthy garments in the sight of God. We might think we're, we're pretty good people when we measure ourselves based on someone else right yeah i put two you know grown adult women together and this one's going to have strengths and weaknesses this one's going to have strengths and weaknesses and one may come out a little bit on top in terms of just practical obedience but when when god walks into the picture and we try to measure ourselves up to him we all fall short on our own we cannot overcome our sin on our own we can't earn our way to god and any pastor or preacher or teacher in a pulpit or on television that told you that, they're not telling you the truth. The gospel is very clear. Jesus was very clear. There is only one way to the Father and He is the way and the truth. And the life. And that's the good news, that God knows us in our separation from him. God knows that we are facing judgment because of our rebellion. And in his love, he sent his son to live the righteous life we couldn't hope to live, to die a sacrificial death so that our sins could be covered. And when we come to him with our empty hands to receive his gift of salvation, we are his and we are made new, a new creation. That's the good news. And that word reconciled is a summary of that. When you trust in Christ by faith, you are reconciled to God. You are are back into a right relationship with God. It's not the full relationship that's going to come in Revelation 21 at the end of all things, but it's a restored relationship with God that is by faith. Because of this hope, because of all of this reality that the gospel tells us, Revelation 21 for the believer, is not just an empty hope. It is a coming reality, and it is a sustaining hope today. We can be made new by trusting in all that Jesus has done for us, and when we do, all of these promises become ours. Like what God says in Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We all know what it feels like to be thirsty, but this is a deeper kind of thirst. He's not talking about thirst for water. He's talking about a thirst for eternity. He's talking about that, that thirst and hunger That's like a a homesickness. It's that whole exile idea. And when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, and when we hunger and thirst for God, and when we hunger and thirst for that eternal life with him, he says, I'll give it freely. I'll give it away as a gift, not to be received. I mean, not to be earned, but to be received. Happy are those, Jesus said, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's the type of hunger and thirst that he's talking about here it's not going to be satisfied with old water and old bread. It's not going to be sacrificed with old stuff. It's going, to be sacri- it's going to be satisfied with new stuff. The new stuff that Christ and only Christ can give. It's a spiritual longing that he's talking about here. But he also says this. He says, The one who conquers. To the one who conquers. This is language that he's used throughout the Revelation. He's talked about uh, the the conqueror all the way back in the letters of Revelation uh, 1 through 3. It's those who endure the troubles of this world. Those who endure the persecution of this world. Those who hold fast to Christ and Christ alone in the midst of all that this world can throw at us. Here are the ways that, that John has used it. Throughout this book he says the conquerors are those who will grant uh, be granted access to the tree of life those who will not be hurt by the second death those who will receive the hidden manna and the white stone those who will have authority over the nations those whose names are secured in the book of life those who will become pillars in the temple of god and those who will take part in this new jerusalem that is what's promised to those who conquer and here's what this is this is an encouragement For all of us as believers to not abandon our hope in Christ, but to hold on to Jesus. This is about perseverance. In the midst of our difficult life, in the midst of the sorrows that can overwhelm us, in the midst of a world that has set its sights on Christians and pushed us to the margins, if not worse. In a world filled with trials and tribulations, so many things we can't even number them all on a prayer list. All of those things have a tendency to want to cause us to let go of our hope. And he's saying, don't let go of your hope in Christ. Hold fast, conquer, persevere. Heaven awaits those who persevere in their faith. Don't abandon your hope in the Lord. Don't set Jesus aside to go after another. Endure the trials of this life and you will receive the blessings beyond compare in the life to come. That's the picture here. But for those who abandon Christ, who reject his word, who go their own way, who worship other gods, who embrace a life of sin and rebellion, their life won't result in a blessing. It will result in the curse that he outlines for us in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That is the second death friend, if you're here and you don't know Christ, well, you're here, but if you don't know Christ, I hope by God's grace you've heard enough of the gospel this morning that you could be confronted with the true hope that we have as Christians. It's not that we're better than anyone. It's not that we figured out the, the magic way to get God to do what we want him to do. It's that we have heard the good message of God's love for us, and with empty hands, we've come on our knees and said, yes, I want that. And friend, there's only one hope, and that hope is Christ. And all of the blessing of heaven. I know you have a picture of heaven in your mind, but there's only one way to get there. There's only one way to access that, and that's through faith in Jesus. So come to the Lord. Abandon your own self-salvation mission. Turn from the hope that is of this world and put your hope in Christ. All right, I want to I give some concluding thoughts. Just summarize some things here. Three things. Number one, God will make all things new. That's a promise of this passage and that's the promise of all of Scripture. We all know that something has gone deeply wrong in our world and our hope as Christians is that God will set all things right. There is a day coming when this world, this life, and this age will pass away and all that is broken will be put back together. All that is wrong will be made right. All of the effects of sin will be removed and wiped away and destroyed and will never be seen again. And that long chapter of this age will end and the eternal chapter, where every new page is better than the last one, that is what is to come. And this does not mean, Christian, by the way, that we just put our our hands under our seat and we just let it all happen. No, in this day and age, while we're still here, we still have a mission. We're still to be on call. We're still to be preaching the gospel and gathering as the saints and making Christ known and living for Him and raising up our children to be disciples of Christ. So so we're not abandoning our responsibilities, just just waiting for the, the hope to come. We have work to do. But here is our ultimate hope. It's not in this life. It's in what He's promised us in the life that is to come. And in that, He will make all things new. What a hope. And, and number two, like I mentioned earlier, this is the main point of all of Scripture, and this is the main point of this passage. God will dwell with his people. God will dwell with his people. Heaven is the place where God dwells, earth is the dwelling place of man, and when this vision becomes reality, the two of them will be brought together. And if your idea of heaven doesn't include the presence of God, then you don't have a biblical understanding of heaven. The whole point of heaven. The whole point of the Bible is God and man together again, and it's God who makes the way possible. The garden was the first place where God and man dwelt together, but sin ruined that. The tabernacle and the temple became a place where God and man could come back together, but only one man one day for one short time to do one particular cleansing ritual. Now we have access to God by faith in Christ, but when this vision becomes a reality, faith will no longer be necessary. We will dwell with our Creator. We will see Him and He will be our God. And then lastly, your perseverance, our perseverance in the faith matters. Our perseverance in the faith matters. If your hope is built on the fact that you prayed a prayer when you were six and there's not an ongoing hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then then you've got a lot of ground to cover because that's not the sum total of the Christian experience. We're to be constantly growing, learning, loving, worshiping, speaking the truth to others, repenting of sin and trusting in christ committing ourselves to the word of god and prayer it's very easy for us to go through the the motions of one day a week religion but listen the scriptures hold out so much more to us and if we're going to endure the trials and suffering that this world holds out to us we're going to need deeper anchors than just that we need to be faithful to the end and that means a moment by moment day by day perseverance in the faith So persevere and hold firmly to the hope that we have in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this beautiful picture, this vision, and this voice, and this vow, this promise from you about what is to come for your people. And I pray that today we would long for it even more, that we would hold fast to the truth with even greater spiritual intensity. We know that your scriptures tell us that, that you hold us fast even while we hold on to the truth. And so we need your spirit to renew our hope day by day. But would you continue to work in us so that we can press on toward the prize of that upward call? Not putting our hope in our accomplishments, but constantly remembering your love and being motivated to faithfulness because of it. And I pray that this picture of heaven, this picture of all things being made new, will, will not overtake in our hearts and minds the reality of being able to dwell with you. Because that's the, that's the bigger picture. That's the bigger story. That's the main point. So help us to long for that in all of these things. Accomplish your purpose. Help us.